Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hey, everybody. Welcome to From the Kitchen Table. I'm your host, Sean Duffy, along with my co-host for the podcast, but also my partner in life, Rachel Campos Duffy. Thank you, Sean. It's so great to be back at our kitchen table for our podcast. And today we're going to be discussing something that's been in the news. A lot of us don't know all the ins and outs of it, and that's Ukraine. That's right. Um, you know, it looks like we, you know, I get worried every time I wake up. I might we might be in a war with you, you know, know. with the Russians here. And a, a lot of us just don't know what side we fall on. I mean, there's this part about us taking leadership, um, but then I'm also worried that I don't trust our leaders. And I don't know if that's really in the best interest as we look at the whole picture with regards to China. And we want to engage, but what kind of engagement should it be? And I think, I mean, we want to have a smart conversation about um, where we go, what's the best role for America, which is why we wanted to bring in two people that have maybe two different kinds of they perspectives do have two on this issues. Of view on this. And uh, later in the show, you're going to hear from J.D. Vance. So uh, he stick wrote, around for that because he's amazing. really got some interesting points to make. Very different from our first guest. So you guys know who J.D. Vance is. He's he wrote Hillbilly Elegy. He's running for the Senate in Ohio. He's very America first and is very skeptical about Tucker the Biden frequently. administration's position um, and willingness and, 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 and aggressiveness, really, in terms of of dealing with this situation in Ukraine and the Russians. Really the, insightful conversation. Yeah, it's a very insightful conversation. It goes in a lot of different directions. But first, we're going to speak with Congresswoman Sparts, and she's a congresswoman from Indiana. She immigrated to the United States in 2000. She was on a train and she met her husband, an American, and she ended up getting married and moving to the United States, becoming a U.S. citizen. She worked her way up from being a bank teller to a CPA to a finance executive. She start, started her own business, ended up in the state house in Indiana, and now is the first Ukrainian-American Congress person um, in the U.S. Congress. So really interesting perspective. She grew up behind the Iron Curtain, Sean. She, she did, and now she's a U.S. Congresswoman and has a great perspective, obviously, on Ukraine. That's where she's from. So let's that. welcome to the kitchen table Congresswoman Victoria Sparts. Congresswoman, welcome. Thank you for having me. So we're so excited to have you. No better guest on this topic than you. So why don't you just first start by laying out the groundwork for us here. On how you see this conflict, how did it develop, Victoria? What's kind of the flavor in Ukraine, you know, and, and uh, opinions of, you know, Russia and the aggression? Just kind of give us a couple of minutes on that. Thank you for having me. You know, I have probably some unique perspective because I actually was born in the Soviet Union on the border with Russia and Belarus. So I grew up in Chernihiv region. Actually, Chernihiv prince during Kiev and Rus, he was the one who studied Moscow because there was a lot of attacks from Mongols from the east and they wanted to to move the capital a little bit more north. So there is a lot of history in that area. 
So if you look at this, you know, why, you know, and for me to tell you the truth, it's unfortunate what's happening in Europe. And when Soviet Union fell apart, it was such opportunity for democracy, for deliberation, deliberation and debate. And I grew up in the 90s when I went to college there. We had a debate of ideas and ideals and a very democratic movement. And it's sad for me to see how much downhill it went, especially in Russia since that time. But if you think of the whole crisis that's happening there, it's really not a territory crisis. You know, President Putin has a ton of territory to worry himself. You know, he has, you know, China taking over Siberia. He has a lot of problems there. So I think, you know, he it's really, you know, his uh, sphere of influence and his big ego, because unfortunately he cannot get over that Soviet Union fell apart. Ukraine, when I left, you know, the area that I grew up was, you know, very open-minded, some people still was pro-Soviet Union, some people wanted socialism, some wanted democracy. But I was surprised to see, especially in the last seven years, how people changed and how pro-Western they became. So they don't want a socialist communist. They want to go to Europe. They want to, you know, why do you think that happened? What, what you know, and I think that you know, why, I think did... it happened gradually, but I'll be honest with you, since Ukraine, you know, it's corrupt government, bad economy, much more Ukrainians closer to Europe had to do different jobs in Europe. They've seen democracy a little bit more. Russians are a little bit deeper in Siberia. They not go as much and interact with Western Europe. So the conflict started when Ukraine wanted to really go in the U. You know, and President Putin really, it bothered him. And I don't know. I mean, at some point, even Russia discussed they wanted to be more democratic, but it just went downhill for a lot of different reasons. And now there are some, you know, China has their own interests, including in Ukraine. Ukraine has a lot of rare earth minerals and Ukraine recently blocked China from buying strategic assets. They also are just now bought some uh, military plant with some technologies that Ukraine now not agreeing to sell it. So I think they're also playing behind the scenes. They always do. They have economic interests. So I think, you know, they kind of team up in some way, one for economic interests, you know, another one for really just maybe ego. You know, I don't know. It's hard to say, but it's unfortunate. And I think that the problem they have, you know, even though they use a lot of, and I haven't really watched Russian TV, you know, but recently I turned on Russian TV, it's really just so much anti-American propaganda. It's worse than during Soviet Union time. I was shocked. Wow. So they try to agitate the public. But I think Ukrainians are very determined now. They have, you know, a lot of young people die. If you think about it, Ukraine been independent for 30 years, right? I grew up, you know, when it still was Soviet Union, a lot of these young kids, they've never known, you know, any country, just Ukraine. Now thousands of them died. Now their parents, you know, I mean, seen, seen what's happening. So we, I mean, the region I grew up in, very anti-Russian now. The people, actually Russian-born people who live in that area. I mean, their kids are dying. Their kids have to fight a war. I think it will have significant implication now between relationship between Russia and Ukraine. And I think it will be very negative. There is a lot of bad blood out there now. So, so Victoria, as, as we kind of set the stage, we have tens of thousands of Russian troops at the Ukrainian border. Um, we have, you know, NATO, you know, m making um, some plays 
um, with regard to the the is some would say the eminent attack from Russia. We have Ukraine seeking you know weapons and armaments uh, from NATO, from the U.S. I know Poland and the U.K. are are giving arms. Um, but there's a debate in the U.S. What role should we have as a member of NATO and as an independent country? Some people say we we should send Ukraine's troops. Ukraine's not part of NATO. They're not part of NATO, right? But we should we should send troops in. We shouldn't send any troops in. We should just sell arms or give arms so the Ukrainians can defend themselves against a Russian attack. What should the U.S. do in regard to this looming threat of an attack from Russia and from Putin? Well, first, you know, uh, it's a challenge for us. In some way, you know, uh, Europe has been reluctant to deal with their problems. But unfortunately, yes, you know, <laughs> Europe does need our leadership. And without our leadership, it creates a lot of instability. And, you know, we can say that we can do nothing and, you know, and do what, uh, you know, UK did in 1938 by giving part of Czech Republic to Germany. Well, ended up not very well and ended up coming you know, hunt all of us. And we had to send a lot of kids to die, unfortunately, and no one wants to do it. So we need to work to de-escalate situation and really have a serious con conversation with Russia on diplomatic front. But unfortunately, you know, our president's policy were very weak, domestically caused a lot of problems and internationally. Our failed withdrawal from Afghanistan debacle where we abandoned US citizens and we abandoned NATO allies, that wasn't good. Putin was watching that our terrible, stupid energy policies, yes. where now, you know, countries are dependent, you know, on countries like Russia, and they're making a lot of money, put a lot of dependency. So I think he is using the weaknesses and see internal instability. So his aggressors will try to take advantage. We have a different commitments. You know, we don't have a commitment to guarantee any security to Ukraine. We do have some commitment on the Budapest Memorandum where Ukraine was the third largest nuclear country in the world after United States and Russia. And then Soviet Union fell apart. And on the return, you know, of uh, giving up nuclear weapons, we promised, you know, assurances, UK, Russia and us give assurances of uh, their security and sovereignty, right? So I think it causes us a problem because sure, next but, time but, but, when but we Victoria, want to denuclearize other country, you know, so it causes a problem. So it's, then we have to discuss what, you know, what we're going to do. Our but we don't have necessity. They don't ask. And I don't think, you know, any anyone would even argue that we would need to send troops to Ukraine. That is not something that ever discussed in any side of, you know, and uh, it's needed. You know, with the NATO allies, it's a little bit different, you know, whether we like it or not. If we decide that NATO is not the right organization, we can rethink about it. But at this point, we have commitment under Article 5. And when President Putin checked about pre-1997, you know, uh, spheres of influence is NATO, that's affected a lot of allies like Baltic and Poland. So it's a different commitment. So I think President Biden will very slow on responding, but I think he now understands that he put in situation where he just becomes reacting and he instead of being more proactive. I think that's a really good point, though, and I don't think a lot of Americans uh, understand this, the, the point that, that Ukraine is not part of NATO, but they were a huge nuclear power after the fall of the Soviet Union. There's a lot of nuclear weapons there. And we wanted them out of Ukraine into the Soviet Union and to uh, to have Ukraine give up their weapons. 
we made assurances to Ukraine. So we do have some responsibility to your point. Um, and I guess maybe, maybe what I hear you saying is we shouldn't send any U.S. troops, but we should send arms so they can so the Ukrainians can develop them uh, to can defend themselves. Number one, but you make another really interesting point as well. This isn't in our backyard. Why? I mean, I, I mean, I get that you know uh, that Putin's a threat. Uh, I know he's a bully, um, and I know bad things can happen when you know you you show uh, um, weakness and you appease. But this is in Europe's backyard. Why doesn't Russia? I mean, why doesn't why doesn't France and Germany and other European countries care more about Ukraine in their backyard than we should here in the U.S.? Well, I have similar frustrations that you have, and honestly, especially with Germany, I'll be honest with you that Germany needs to have much stronger stance. Unfortunately, they put themselves in Russian dependency, eliminated coal industry and nuclear industry powers too. So that's what caused them now a lot of problems, and they have huge dependency on Russian gas. But I think they also need to understand that, you know, they have to be able to be united if Russia makes some moves to be part of the sanctions to Russia, if Russia is going to pursue further, because it destabilizes the whole world. And the whole world is watching, too. The issue goes beyond Ukraine in this situation. And also, you know, it's not like when we, you know, had at the time of Cuba crisis where the, you know, the, the, the range of rackets matter and they came to Cuba, the wars are very different now. We do need to have some friends and, and Russia can attack and been attacking, including us from far away. So just saying that they're not going to be coming after us and China is not coming after us, it's just very naive and not wise. But I think the first we need to do, try to be able to have a negotiation with Russia, because I think we're the only country that Putin will be willing to sit at the table. But we need to be very clear that we are going to prefer to, you know, to de-escalate it through diplomacy. But if he's pushing us in a situation and, it, and it's going to be attacking allies, we have no other choice. Right. I think it's bad for Russia what he's doing. He will weaken his country. And I think he needs to be serious if he really cares about his country, his people, to sit down at the table and have a serious conversation. Since the 1970s, working class Americans and U.S. investors who saved wealth in dollars have seen the dollar lose over 80 percent of its purchasing power. In contrast, investors who diversified their cash into gold saw gold appreciate over 5,000 percent. For Americans who invested $50,000 in gold when America left the gold standard in the 70s, their gold is worth more than $2.5 million today. While gold carries no guarantees and past performance does not equal future results, investors who do their own research will see that gold's performance over this time span is what gold has consistently done in the face of eroding paper currencies. For over 15 years, St. Joseph Partners has built its business with a singular focus on helping investors diversify their wealth and protect their families in physical gold and silver you hold in your hand. Don't let your hard-earned savings go unhedged. Call St. Joseph Partners or go to our joint website, kitchengold.net, not .com. That is kitchengold.net and protect your wealth. I So I want to talk a little bit about the energy policies. I think it's really important. I mean, we've basically, by allowing Germany um, to have this dependency on Russian gas and oil and, and other people in Europe, but especially Germany, I think we've weakened the West. We've divided ourselves. We were not a united front. 
the way we can um, in dealing with Russia. But there's another part of this that really concerns me. And as an American, I look at my, the, the, the foreign enemy that I'm most concerned about, and that's China, Congresswoman. And I feel like this situation with Ukraine, and again, I don't have the background or the history you have, but what I do see is that it's causing Putin and China to get closer together. Um, and, I, and I wonder whether that's a good idea in the long term for America and, and, and if we would be better off not doing something that has that result so that we could better triangulate them. Well, let's just not be naive. China and Putin has been close together for a while. There are a lot of uh, interest China has in buying assets. You know, I have actually, I talked to someone in Ukraine, they're actually originally from Russia. Their military, his, you know, his, uh, her husband was in the military in the Soviet Union. They're from Far East. And they say there are almost no Russians left there, mostly Chinese Russians even afraid to get out of their houses. So China been advancing their interest a lot. They have a lot of influence in Russia, so they've been aligned. And if you think about it, you know, unfortunately, Russia, most of the wars we fought, you know, they were against Russian weapons. So they didn't want to be our friends. And they decided to align with a communist country. And it's unfortunate that they did. But it's not like, you know, they're right you know, doing something, they're trying to go with us. And, you know, and now somehow we're going to push. They're already there. They already, China has enormous amount of economic control and interest in Russia and in a lot of other countries. Ukraine pushed back, maybe because they want, they don't want it, maybe because they want to appease the West. I'm not sure, but they recently pushed back. So China really has some interest in this conflict too, but they were trying to act, you know, like they don't and they're a peaceful country. But if you see on the UN Security Council, there were only two countries that blocked the debate, Russia and China. It's not like China stayed neutral. They didn't stay neutral. So it's not going to, they're already pushed together. They have their own, you know, competition, but I, I haven't seen any desire of Russian president to move away from that to the West. And if he has a serious desire, I think we should be open to have that conversation, but I haven't seen any signs of it. But you talk about the conversation um, with with uh, the American administration, with Biden and with Putin. It sounds like they have been talking and the real concern that that Putin has is he doesn't want Ukraine to be part of NATO. And that's a fine position for him to take. But it's not like he's a good guy, right? I mean, he's attacked Georgia. What was that, 14, 15 years ago? He attacked the country of Georgia um, with Ukraine. He attacked and took Crimea. So it's not like he's just, you know, you know, you know, poor old Putin sitting in the corner being abused by the world. He's actually an aggressor. And it sounds like we're not even having a conversation right now about Ukraine becoming a member of NATO. So this is a, a created crisis that Putin is, has brought to the world stage. When again, we're not having a, a conversation right now in the immediate terms of bringing Ukraine into the into the United Nations. That's one point I want to ask you about. Another one is, I do think the rest of the world, and this is a point that you earlier made, watches how our administration operates. They saw the uh, ridiculous withdrawal from Afghanistan and how we left our allies um, stranded and Americans stranded. It shows weakness and how we behave in one you know, corner of the world lets other enemies potentially read that and 
you know, and look at how they can, you know, use that as leverage. Russia is one of them, but also China uh, and Taiwan is another place that really matters. And, and that's why this, this conflict, maybe our involvement is being debated, but making sure we get through it correctly is important for peace because we need to be perceived and have to be strong to make sure we don't have a, a, a more aggression from from Russia and more aggression from from China. Well, I think you know. I mean, the discussion Ukraine, I, you know, it's a long shot, okay? And who knows what is going to be in the future? But at the current, you know, situation, it's really not about NATO. You know, Russia doesn't like that. Ukrainians are going to be, you know, more democratic because then Russians are going to think, oh, and we live in the dictatorship. It just creates a big example, bad example for him and internally, you know, because he moved country into dictatorship. You know, Ukrainians saw the West, they want to be free. They don't want communist socialists. They're tired of it. So they're willing to die for it and literally dying for freedoms. And, and that is not that easy to do. Not that many people are willing to do it, but they have been under suppression being between East and West for so much. So I think they, as Cossacks, as always, they were suppressed by Stalin and tried to kill a ton of them through, through famines and through wars. I mean, mo- if you think about it, there is four times more per capita Ukrainians died in World War II than Russians, you know? So, I mean, the, almost the whole male population of Ukraine were, were killed. I mean, I all had my great-grandfathers killed, including, you know, my great-grandmothers and everything because they were supporting Jewish people and partisan movements. So we had, I mean, Ukrainians really suffered much higher percentage-wise from World War II than even Russia. So they're just tired of that. So I think people have much more freedom and that will and i think it's a danger for russia so i think this is you know bad example for him but i think it's also important for us to show that you know we we're leading the world and you know and europe needs us i mean unfortunately a lot of countries don't value that and i think we what i like what president trump did he put pressure i mean we have uk which is a great ally you know, but some other allies are very wishy-washy. And I like that he pushed on them and said, you know what, you need to pay your dues. We have responsibility. You have much more imminent dangers than we do from any aggression. And you need to step up. I think it was good to push them to do that. You know, and I think President Biden being what we've been doing in Afghanistan, particularly, and included with NATO allies, pretty much abandoned and not listened, it didn't help us. But we have to deal with where we are in the short term and then figure out how we can have a better policy long term. But we do need to try to de-escalate the situation. We need to give President Putin out because it's bad for his country, too. I mean, he so, needs to understand it. If you were, if you were advising the Biden administration, you're a Republican congresswoman, obviously, but let's say that Joe Biden called you today and said, Congresswoman, you have you know keen insight on this issue. Tell me the three things I should do right now to <laughs> well, fix I mean, the situation. I don't think I'm going to get that call. You I know, know you're not. And I've been very critical and he put himself into a situation, position of weakness because, you know, when you... <laughs> play your cards. And if you, I mean, just even with Nord Stream 2, if whatever he felt about it, just to lift the sanctions without getting on uh, anything in return, it's a very bad negotiation. You know, yes. everything he does, is just was so not smart what he done. And now he's put in some situation where 
he has to figure out what to do. The good thing for him, Russian aggression really united much more United Nation and EU. I was surprised to see when we met, you know, we, we went to Brussels and met with EU parliament representatives where you even have countries like Finland and um, Sweden now like getting nervous. And so it, it did unite you much more. I think it's also provided now the Europeans like, oh, we really need United States. We are in trouble. <laughs> so I think right. that's kind of, you know, but I think he needs to, you know, now deal with situation. We need to have some deterrence and develop some, you know, package of sanctions if if President Putin decides to do what he's really pretty close of doing, then he needs to understand that we're serious and it's going to be a pain. It's going to be painful for him. He cannot just make a deal with China to back him up because it's going to hurt him, his people, his economy, and especially people around him, these oligarchs that live in a great life right now, because it's it's really, you know, they're suppressing people and be very wealthy on top. We need to unite, you know, European allies, make sure the sanctions are meaningful. And, you know, it's because that's a deterrence, you know, that's something that needs to happen. Then we need to reassure our NATO members that we are actually going to support them, that we are there for them. And I think it's important that we went there on a bipartisan basis and reassure if we have commitment, we're going to follow it. If we decide, wait, oh, we want some different structure, we can do different structure. But at this point, we are committed to our allies in NATO under Article 5, and we are not wishy-washy country. You know, we need to, you know, figure out what we can do with Ukraine, but also we also need to try to have a serious conversation and give a chance to President Putin to sit at the table and say, if you are serious about that, there is no threat to his security. This is not like I was just saying, like that you need to have a Cuban missiles close to the United States to be able to reach. There is no threat to his security. So if he's serious and he wants to have a conversation that we should have to try to de-escalate through diplomatic means. And I think that should be first choice given to him and then go down the list. All right. Well, I, I think uh, Germany has a big part to play in this. It's uh, as long as they're dependent on Russian gas and oil, I think uh, it's going to be really hard to get to get the right, um, thing. Get the right. right outcome. But uh, I appreciate you spending some time with us here at our kitchen table talking about these issues. I know Americans all over the country are wondering what we should do. I think your opinion is, is very valuable. Considering how thank you. One thing I wanted to add because it's really energy, strategic energy security. And if we want to be, you know, be proactive, we need to be very smart. You know, under President Trump, you know, Germany was pushed to build LNG terminals in Germany. As soon as President Biden came in power, they pulled back. Now they say it's a problem for them. Well, you know, so we need to look in a short term how we can help with, you know, with with the security, energy security. But we need to have a long term view of our energy policy and have actually policies, not politics. Because when we have unrealistic utopian energy ideas, you know, they're not going to be accomplished in the short term. It's not just hurts our people and our economy. It also hurts the peace and stability around the world. And then we have to go fight wars and no one wants to do it. So we have to think about energy security long term. But thank you for having me. 
and Congresswoman, I think that is, that, that is a point. fantastic point because if if Germany or Europe can't rely on exports of American LNG, natural gas, liquefied, which I voted, I was proud to vote for that and work on that as well and get it out of the right. house. Right. And the One more thing, when I met with German ambassador, they point out now we're importing more oil than ever from Russia too. So that's kind of a yeah. joke too. And, well, but but if, if Germany is like Russia is a better partner and a more secure energy source than America. That is a problem when we're going to build the Keystone Pipeline uh, right. under Trump, and then it's it's in a, right. in, a in a stroke of a pen taken away. Right. People can't rely because of your point. It's not long-term energy policy; it is short-term politics. Really good point. And listen, thank you for joining us. Thanks for your insight, and thanks for all the great work you do. Thank um, you, yes. Congress, bringing a different perspective and someone who knows what the old Soviet Union was like because you were raised there. So great to have you fighting on the team to make sure we have this beacon of freedom alive and well, and we don't turn into this socialist nightmare, which so many liberals want us to uh, to, to be. So again, thank you for your time and thank you for thank your you. voice and insight. Thank you, Congresswoman. An honor to have you on the show. Thank you, my pleasure. Thank you so much, Congresswoman Sparts, for joining us at the kitchen table. Now we're gonna hear the other side of the argument right after this. All right, so you just heard from the Congresswoman from in- Indiana. She had a really interesting perspective. Definitely thinks that we should be talking about our energy policy, which is exacerbating the situation. And now we're going to bring in J.D. Vance. You, you, you might know him from Hillbilly Elegy. I know that's how I got to know him. I love that book. Um, and I still need to watch the movie, Sean. We need to, yeah. we need to watch it. I've been meaning to do that. We're going to do that. Um, but uh, J.D. is from Middleton, Ohio. He's running for Senate right now in Ohio. He grew up, if you read the book, you know he had a pretty tough childhood, but came out of it great, ended up becoming... Um, a Marine in the Iraq war came back and became a Yale man, a Yale man, a Yale man, Yale chap. Uh, <laughs> but now he's returned to Ohio. He's married. He's got a couple kids. I've seen pictures of his family, beautiful family. And now, as I said, he's running in Ohio. JD, thanks for joining us today. Yeah. Thank you for having me. So we want to get your perspective that, you know, Congresswoman, she, she actually laid out the situation you're welcome to lay out what you see as the situation, but we definitely want to get what you think should happen here. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I, I won't claim to be a foreign policy expert, though I, you know, enlisted in the Marine Corps when I was 18 and uh, served four years overseas. And I, I guess that I think about this from a few different angles. So the first angle is that uh, I, I worry that a lot of our military adventures in the last 20 or 30 years haven't been super connected to a compelling American yeah. national security interest, right? So I, I just sort of start there and say, you know, our leaders have been so bad at connecting our national security interests to our foreign policy that I'm a little skeptical of their ability to do it this time, whereas they've failed the past 20 or 30 years. I think the, sec- the second angle is that you know war is obviously a terrible thing, especially when you're talking about a nuclear power like Russia. And we have to be incredibly careful about what I'd call the tail end risk here, right? What, what, are the, what are the risks that this spirals out of our control, even if it's one in a hundred, you know, you play the game 99 times and it looks okay, but the one in a hundred time that you play it the wrong way, uh, you have a lot of dead people on our side and on, on other sides as well. And then you know, the, the, the third thing, I, I guess, is, is that I, I feel with this Ukraine issue in particular, uh, I feel that there's, there's an, uh, a sort of basically a bailout dynamic to this, where I, I know the Congresswoman talked about our energy policy, and I imagine we agree on uh, most of that stuff, where you know, really, the problem here is that Russia controls Europe's non-green energy. And because green energy is so unreliable and obviously hasn't reached the technological milestone to where it's actually dependable, 
Uh, the reason that Germany and other European countries are so reliant on the Russians is that they control a ton of Europe's energy supply. And so if we end up finding ourselves in a, in a weird military conflict or sort of you know, supporting from a, a secondary effect of military conflict in the Ukraine, I think what that ultimately does is allows the European, Europeans to sort of get out of jail free card on their own energy policy, where frankly, mm. if they had a little bit more uh, of their own military strength, if they spent a little bit higher share of their GDP on their military, uh, and the United States didn't have to protect them, and if they had a little bit more energy independence, uh, they would not need us to deal with Russia. They could do it themselves, which is what we should expect, given that Russia is close to them and it's not very close to us. Which that, that was a point that Trump continued to make is they, they need to spend more of their money on defense, even to meet the two percent threshold as required. And he by, said, "Stop, you know, stop depending on Russia for your yeah. energy." Listen, I, I mean, these the, the, these situations become very very complicated, and I and I think the tale you're right has can be very meaningful. Um, and so, do we want to send young American? You know, men to Ukraine to fight the Russians. I, I don't think many Americans want that. I think do, do we do we want to try to negotiate some kind of peaceful resolution, if possible, with a Putin? That's a great solution. I think arming the Ukrainians is a positive. But but China is actually watching what we do here. China's watching right. how it is. So what we did in Afghanistan uh, wasn't very impressive. Uh, we projected weakness. They're watching what we're doing in Ukraine, and we can't just walk away. And I mean, Ukraine was the third largest nuclear power in the world after the fall of the Soviet Union, as uh, Victoria Sparks pointed out, and they gave up the nuclear weapons uh, based on a pledge by the U.S., not that they could join NATO, but that we would you know, provide security for them, provide aid to them should Russia ever be an aggressor. So, you know, does our word mean anything? And how does this play on the world stage, you know, uh, becomes a factor in how we decide what to do? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, certainly the, the one risk here, the sort of good, the good counter argument to my worldview here is that, you know, we've made certain commitments to the Ukrainians and we can't just walk away from certain promises uh, without meeting those commitments. Now, now, but I'll tell you what, what scares the hell out of me with this whole thing is our intelligence services are, are clearly missing something here or our defense policy leadership is clearly missing something here because, you know, I was led to believe two weeks ago that war was imminent. I mean, like I expected to go to bed one day and wake up and find out that the Russians had just sent 50,000 ground troops across <laughs> yes. the Ukrainian border, right? Uh, but clearly that wasn't true. And there's even a weird way where the Ukrainians, who obviously are the, 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 have the most to lose here in this conflict, where the Ukrainians are sort of wagging their finger at the Biden administration for saber rattling a bit here. And you, you start to wonder, have, have we gotten ourselves in a position where we're actually the most hawkish entity that's playing in this entire sphere, right? The Ukrainians, the Russians, and the Europeans seem to be more willing to do some negotiation. They seem to be less I don't want to say excited, but let you know they're leaning in less to a military conflict here. And 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 again, like I, I hate to come back to this, but I don't have a lot of faith in our military brash and our and our our, our 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 intelligence services right now because they've missed so much in the past twenty or so years. Um, you know, I somebody pointed this out to me the other day, and I was sort of taken aback by it, and I kind of reacted at first. I was like, no, that can't be true. But he was like, the last U.S. general to not lose a war was Colin Powell. Right, which over 30 years ago at this point. Yeah. And when you get to that point, you start to say, can we really prosecute this, this effectively 
Can we assert our own interests? Can we keep our promises to the Ukrainians without getting into a total disaster area? And of course, you guys mentioned this as a huge issue is like, where are the Chinese fit in all of this? And are, are we unwittingly and maybe unintentionally pushing the Russians into the Chinese camp at a time when we should be trying to surround the Chinese with adversaries, not creating new powerful allies for them? So it's funny that you, <laughs> your first point, because we were on, I was on Fox and Friends this past weekend, and we had like one of these like video clips of General Milley kind of breaking down the situation in Ukraine. And we came back and I just looked at my co-host and I said, I don't feel really good about this guy being in charge of anything. <laughs> I was like, this doesn't give me any kind of confidence at all. So I, I hear your point on that completely. Now, I, we asked the congresswoman um, from Indiana about this China situation. And I said, do, do you think that our position or the position of the Biden administration and, and, and as you said, pretty aggressive, um, at least compared to the people, all the other fat, you know, players involved. Are we pushing them into are we pushing Russia into the arms of China? Are we making that alliance tighter when, in fact, we should probably be trying to triangulate and kind of what you were just saying. And she said her answer, by the way, was no, don't be naive. The Chinese and and Putin have been close for a long time. The Chinese have major financial interests in Ukraine. She talked about some of these, you know, um, mining minerals that they use for the the cell phones and all this kind of stuff. Rare earth minerals. Rare earth minerals. Thank there you, we Sean go. Um, I said the day there, Jay. Do you see that? Uh, yeah, you can. Yeah, that's right. That. Um, <laughs> She talked about all these financial interests that China already had there and and how close they that Russia and China were anyway, and that this was not a factor. What do you say to that? Well, I, I, I do disagree with the congresswoman there. Right. Because, first of all, as we all know, these things change and these things evolve. Right. The, the, the Russians were our greatest and most important enemy in the early 1980s and pretty much for the three decades prior to that. Now, obviously, the geopolitical situation changed, and we were their closest ally for a long time, uh, even though I think that, you know, frankly, a lot of the policies that a lot of Americans pushed then on Russia were probably disastrous. Um, you know, we used to be pretty close to the Chinese. We, of course, were fighting the Japanese and the Germans in the 1940s, and now, you know, they're, they're important allies for ours. Uh, so I, I don't think these things are set in stone. And at the end of the day, like, I, I'm never going to sit here and say that Vladimir Putin's a great guy. And I'm not going to sit here and say that they're ever going to be our closest ally, but, you know, their interests are somewhere between ours and the Chinese, right? They don't want a Chinese superpower. They maybe don't like the Americans being too aggressive in Ukraine, uh, but they, they, they have a lot of interests with ours. And I think that as the Chinese grow in power, uh, if the Russians are being smart, then they might see some avenues and some opportunities to work with us. So I, I don't think we should sort of write off the Russians. The other point that I'd make here. Is, is just from a, from a cultural perspective, you know, Russia's a weird place, right? I mean, sort of America, classic, uh, Western, sort of clearly came out of the, Anglo, um, the Anglo-Saxon legal tradition. Um, the, the cultural connection between, say, us and the UK is much closer than it's ever going to be with us and Russia. But by that same token, Russia's not exactly aligned with the Chinese, right? It's a sort of Eastern Orthodox, very religious nation in a lot of ways, uh, has a lot of cultural affinities with Europe more than it does with China. And I, and I think one of the big mistakes that we've made in foreign policy, I mean, going back to the, the Vietnam era, certainly in Iraq and Afghanistan, is, is sort of pretending that everybody is just super self-interested and that culture and history and religious tradition doesn't really matter. And I think if you, if you view, view it through that lens, 
there are some opportunities. Again, we're never, never going to be best friends, maybe, or at least not best friends for the next 30 years. Uh, but we, we maybe have some real opportunities to work with these guys on some important shared interests, especially as the Chinese get more powerful. Um, the, the final point that I, I'd make here is we have to be careful about what our military and what our economic power is being used for. Because if you look at the, what the State Department is doing, and I know you guys are sort of socially conservative. I also am very socially conservative. Now, if you look at what the State Department is doing, um, and, and this has made a lot of enemies, not just in, you know, in, it's made enemies in Russia, it's made enemies in China, it's made enemies in some African nations, some Asian nations, is that our State Department seems to want to push a very socially progressive worldview on, on the rest of the world. Yes, and a lot are. of people don't like that. And th- there is this weird way where we have to be careful that we don't let, you know, our patriotism, our love of the troops, our desire to honor our commitments to Ukraine, to allow conservatives to effectively greenlight a very left-wing State Department and pushing a radical ideology on the rest of the world. Uh, you know, just to be very specific, uh, one of the things that the State Department has criticized as Russia disinformation is that the United States is pushing a transgender ideology that's not good for civilization. Well, I happen to think that transgender ideology is not very good for civilization. Yes. <laughs> and so if we're being honest with ourselves, uh, this, this, the State Department here needs to actually reel itself in a little bit politically. And we need to not let ourselves, meaning conservatives, be used as pawns in a very left wing game. It's such a great point. Uh, Sean and I both have relatives who are conservatives who happen to also be in the State Department. And for years, they've been telling us about this problem, about how they they're willing actually to offend countries, you know, host countries that they're in, in order to, you know, make these progressive, um, uh, you know, to push these progressive agenda, transgender, um, you know, flying, in some cases, flying the rainbow flag instead of the American flag, all kinds of stuff that's going on that a, a lot of conservatives don't like. And I think a lot of Americans don't even know is happening. That's right. Yeah. I mean, do we, do we really want American young men to die and young women, too, of course, uh, so that we can fly a rainbow flag or a BLM flag outside the Kabul embassy in Afghanistan? Yeah. Right? right. And if we're just not right. it, like just let's not be, you know, our, our State Department shouldn't be stupid about this. Whatever their ideology is, like maybe that alienates the locals a little bit in a very traditionalist Muslim society, like have a little bit of respect for the local cultures here. But this is a big problem with our State Department, and I, I, I unfortunately worry that a little bit of what's lurking behind the Russia hawkishness is a State Department that doesn't even see America's interests, but they don't like what Russia stands for, which, again, sometimes I don't like what Russia stands for either, but that doesn't mean our State Department is always right. Yeah, it's uh, the, the, the State Department, how stupid can they be? I mean, I thought this is about, you know, building relationships and, and friendships, not offending oh, no, our, our allies. I, I, J.D., I know you have yeah. to go in a second, but I want to ask you one last quick question. So I thought you brought up a really good point um, when you talk about politics. And oftentimes we, we, we all know, all our listeners know how bad Joe Biden's poll numbers are. We know that um, you're running for the Senate. It looks like we're going to have a red wave coming in in 2022 in November, Democrats are probably going to lose the Senate. For sure, they're going to lose the House. Um, Oftentimes, war uh, and taking your eye off your domestic issues and able to focus the American mind somewhere else can be very good politically, at least in the short term, it can be, Um, which concerns which concerns me just to put a a period on the point that you made. But I want the, the last question. You're a finance guy. So we've talked about, you know, giving weapons. We've talked about troops. We've talked about we've talked about China. 
but on the on the financial service side, um, what kind of impact can we have on China, and how powerful is that? And should we use those economic sanctions um, on a on a on a Russia uh, that uh, aggresses on Ukraine, or is it the wrong place for that kind of power? Yeah, I, I think we have to be careful, right? I'm not totally opposed to using sanctions, you know, and in, 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 again, in the event that it's in our national interest. Uh, but, you know, it's a little weird to me that we talk about economic sanctions with the Russians when we never really talk about it with the Chinese. Even as you guys probably know, the Chinese are buying up a ton of farmland in my, my home state of Ohio, right? Yeah, it's uh, so and, and, weird. We need to yeah, talk it's, about it's, that one day. <laughs> right. It's, it's, it's absolutely, it's just bizarre. And, it, and again, it's like, what are our leaders doing, right? We could wake up in a country in 10 years where a lot of our food supply, in addition to our pharmaceuticals and our manufacturing, are controlled by our biggest geopolitical foe, and we're sending ground troops to potentially fight the Russians. It's it just like, this is so crazy to me. This is such a distraction from some of the real issues that we face. And look, I, I agree with you guys. I worry a little bit. And, and look, I'm, I'm, an, I'm a patriotic guy. I, I served in the Marine Corps for four years. Uh, I don't think that we should be fighting the Russians, but the minute shots start firing, I am going to be the biggest gung-ho America. Let's go. I want us to beat these guys, right? That's how it works. But of course, that impulse can be manipulated by our leaders who are going to take the eye off the ball if we do get in a fight with the Russians and the fact that we have skyrocketing inflation, Chinese buying up our farmland, social media censorship, and any number of other crises that the left just doesn't want to talk about right now. So we got to be careful here. Yeah, we have a lot of problems. Boy, you bring up a lot of them. Here's my last question to you. What should we do about Germany and their dependence on Russian oil and gas? Because it seems to me like that's such, or in, in all of Europe, but especially Germany, that to me, it seems like that is what is maybe dividing the West on its ability to respond or at least create a, a united front against Russia. Yeah, let, let me before I answer that, let me put this as starkly as I can, I guess. We have to appreciate that American tax dollars, American lives, and unfortunately, maybe even American blood maybe subsidizing a fake German energy economy, right? Why should American soldiers die so that Germans can feel good about their solar and wind farms? Because that's very close to the situation that they've put us in. Uh, this, a is a, this is a disastrous energy policy that Germany has pursued. It has made them susceptible and vulnerable to the Russians. And they chose this, right? At the end of the day, the Germans chose this. And I think we have to say as Americans, look, if you want to pursue these disastrous energy policies, uh, we, we disagree with it. We don't like it because maybe it empowers our enemies, but that is your choice and we're not going to bail you out. I mean, how many times have that. Americans been out, asked to bail out people who make stupid decisions, you know, from, from bakers and housing speculators in our own country to German energy policymakers? This is ridiculous and we need to stop doing it. And frankly, if the Germans face some real consequences, maybe people all over the world will say, Let's not go fully in on the green energy agenda because Americans aren't going to always be there to bail us out. Yeah, well, we have we have stupid energy policies now too. But it, but it, yes, but we again, do. They're but they're, but again, maybe one last point: they're, they're, for for oil and gas, they rely on on Russia, and for green energy, batteries and windmills and and solar panels, they they rely on China. It's like this is <laughs> really yeah. really stupid. Um, yeah, listen, absolutely. Jane, Listen, JD, thank you for joining us. And I, I know uh, you're on the campaign trail and I know how hard that is. We did it as a family and uh, we wish you the best of luck. And again, um, primary is coming when, JD? Can I, can I, can I ask you one? 
Can I ask you one last question though regarding please, that though? Please go how's ahead. Your, how's your family doing on this thing? I, we, it's we're, a family affair. We, we know it. how hard it is, and just I saw the picture of your beautiful family, and I just thought my heart went out to them because I know how hard it is on the campaign trail. How how's the family doing? How nice your opponents are to you, JD on TV. <laughs> yeah. They seem to love you and say the best things about you. It's it always feels good when your kids see that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's yeah, that's right. No, we can't. Can't watch a, a Bengals game without my fat head being on TV saying something <laughs> that uh, is taken out of context. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I I think it's there's no way to sugarcoat it. It's definitely hard on our family, and uh, you know, we we had a we had a baby, actually, our first daughter, our third kid, uh, about a, a, a week before Christmas. So she's six weeks now, and you know, my wife is a saint for letting me do this. And and I, and I will say, as hard as it is, it feels very worthwhile. And because we got a lot of family support, it's it hasn't been nearly as bad as I feared that it would be. So. I appreciate you asking. We're doing great. Family's doing great. There are some sacrifices that come along with it. But as you guys know, uh, those sacrifices can be worthwhile. I think if you do it the right way. I think you're right. And JD, I'll just say that we know uh, a lot of Americans don't know the sacrifice that goes in for a family when someone decides to raise their arm and run. Um, and we're grateful that you're doing it. And we had a baby on the campaign trail, too. Did. That's hard. We had a baby yeah. as well. And it's, yes, it's not easy. It makes life that much more difficult. I was, I was two months into the race coming home from a campaign event. And Rachel's like, and I have some news for you. I'm pregnant. And yeah, I'm like, we can't do this. Sean's like, sorry, I already announced. I can't roll back now, but, but, but again, the work you can do JD, especially with a, you know, a 50, 50 Senate. Um, and hopefully we, we take this back into Republican control and we're going to win the house incredibly important if we're going to save America. So uh, at least the Duffy family, and I know so many Ohioans are grateful for all you're doing and the work you're putting in. You'd make a great Senator. I think yeah, you would. Thank too. you. Both. All right. Well, thank you. That was a great conversation with JD. Very, guy. He's a bright guy, isn't he? He, he, he really is. Guy. Uh, well, we want to thank JD. We also want to thank Congresswoman Sparts, who gave us so much insight from her experience living in that area. And for joining us at our kitchen table, it's a complicated issue. Rachel. The- I mean, I, I, it's, it, as you look at this, you're like, well, uh, there's ha- there has to be some U.S. engagement, but it has to be really thoughtful. And I think you made this point. Sometimes I don't have the greatest faith that the uh, the American intelligentsia and the military and the State Department are the ones that are making the smartest decisions to navigate this very treacherous waters really successfully for the American people. Yeah, I really thought that JD did a good job of reminding us of how incompetent so many of our leaders are, how poorly executed so many of our recent wars have been. And I think it really does give you pause and go, gosh, um, I don't feel very good about Joe Biden and his team, whether it's General Milley or Blinken at the State Department. I don't feel a lot of confidence with any of these guys in charge going into something this this uh, this grave, this important that that could have so many you know consequences on the lives and direction of our country, especially at a time when we are so economically weak, we are so culturally weak, we are so um, weak on so many levels in our country with crime exploding and inflation and every everything else we're dealing with. Just hard to believe we might open this can of worms as well. And I would just I, I would say that we we hire people in in government, whether it's our elected leaders or the or the staff that they bring in around them to be smart and make the right decisions. And sometimes the American people might wanna go in one direction, but the, 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 the intelligence and insight of the leader has to take you in a different direction and make the right call. I don't have the faith that they're I gonna make I don't at all. the right call I don't and navigate this. I think this. JD so, laid it out. 
really well. Like the, especially when you talked about the priorities of our state department. Um, I've yes, seen that for, for a long time now, even when Trump was in, you know, the deep state and the state department was pushing so many of these, you know, pro abortion policies, pro transgender, pro gay policies all over and not really looking out for our interests, our economic interests, uh, which should have been their, their can, priority. Can, can I just say one, one, one thing on J.D. Um, and you, you mentioned hillbillyology. This is a guy who came from nowhere, came from nothing yeah, uh, and was able to make something of his life and climb the ladder. Um I'm not supposed to say this anymore, but he pulled himself up by his bootstraps. You can't I, say that in America. I like, I'm not going to let someone I not like, say that. I, did. I like men and women who have, um, who've come from the hard place. They know how hard it is. And yeah, they have I mean, a heart for people. His mom was people. addicted to drugs. He was yeah. raised by his grandmother. Um, he had this tough childhood and and really made something of himself. And I think that he, he decided after he you know, made some money. I, I guess he's a kind of a wealthy dude from what I've been he's hearing. He's done well in finance. Yep. <laughs> came, he came back to Ohio and now he's running. And but he gets, he gets a whole picture. He wasn't born with a silver spoon in his mouth. He wasn't gifted anything. Everything he has, he earned. Um, and I, I think guys like that are so cool and have so much insight. Um, and I think they serve the country and their people really well. And so, I, again, I'm excited about his candidacy. Yep. And, you know, and, and Congresswoman Sparts too, Sean, I, I thought, you know, this is somebody, as you said, who knows what it's like to live under, you know, that that communist behind system. the Iron Curtain. Yeah. Yeah. Behind the Iron Curtain. And she is I mean, her perspective, you know, she met her husband on a train and uh, her American husband and, and ended up moving here. And she, you know, started her own business, kind of also started from nothing and um Studied economics, so has a good grasp on that. Started really the Tea Party in her community. I mean, this is cheap, but again, people who have lived under what Democrats oh. want this country to live under, oh, they'll fight to keep us free. Some oh, yeah. of the immigrants who have lived there, they yeah. want to keep what has made this country so great, which is our freedom and our free enterprise. People experience communism. That, Boy, yeah. they're they're the greatest fighters um, in in Congress. So anyway, great conversation. Yes. I don't know if it if it helped people. Make up their mind one way or another. It didn't help me. I'm still a little bit like, where where do we go? But um, I guess I see the value of containing Russia at the end of this and and staying true to some of the commitments we made to the Ukrainians when we asked them to give up their nuclear weapons. I, I think that's important. But I think overriding um, is the incompetency and my lack of faith in our leaders to execute this in a way that will actually bring about a good end, especially for our, our interests. I'm just not there. My, my one takeaway is but we have so many problems here. I want to, them to deal listen, with that. Give them the tools, give them the arms, let them have the, the resources to fight for themselves and fight for their own freedom. I don't want to spend American blood, but I, but, and again, the Ukrainians are strong people. They're proud people. They want to fight. If we want to help them with military assets, that's what our role should be, but not young men and women. And I think that would keep our pledge to them that we will assist them. Yeah. In, in that and, and they but have been dying. Our, they have been dying and we been. have not been assisting them properly. I will say one last point, my biggest takeaway, and I kind of came into the conversation with this anyway, Sean, but my biggest takeaway is Germany. Germany's yeah. a problem. They, they seem to get it wrong through history here. <laughs> uh, yeah. They got to they got to fight for their own. Uh, they got to deal with their own energy, uh, the consequences of their own energy policy. And I'm not willing to put um, our our boys, our blood, our treasure on the line for them to be green. Um, Heck so. no. But 
Uh, what's uh, not green was my coffee. It was black. Um, so thanks for joining us at the kitchen table, everybody. We appreciate the conversation and the insight. Um, and uh, if you've enjoyed this conversation, make sure you subscribe, you rate, you review. Yes. You like whatever the hell you're supposed yeah, to say now, Rachel. And rate this podcast <laughs> at boxyspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. We hope to see you around the kitchen table next week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, in these ever-changing times, you can rely on Fox News for hourly updates for the very latest news and information on your time. Listen and download now at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.